do. I don't think Lindsay and Frederick do, so you may want to share it real quick. You're live. Well, we are live now, and we're going to do some quick intros. We're going to go reverse order, and uh, welcome to the green room where we're talking about, you know, crypto NFTs. Just kidding. Um, oh my God, what a crash! But uh, let's do reverse intros. Where are you calling in from? What are you talking about? David, what's going on? Yep, great to be here, Ray and Vala. Uh, we're going to do the Everything Space episode of Disruptive, where we're talking about how space laws and norms are changing with commercial satellites, what commercial satellites are capable of with AI, and then what does this mean for companies that are trying to operate in the disrupted world? Very cool. Thank you. And you're in DC. so Exactly. Art, what are we talking about today? What's going on and where are you calling in from? Oh, Frederick, over to you. Yeah, so it broke up a little bit there. So we are going to talk today about space cloud, how we actually now have transferred the terrestrial cloud into space so that you can have seamless data interaction with space, just the same way you do with terrestrial uh, cloud. And that really changes the way we do uh, business in space, but it also transforms how you can leverage your satellite infrastructure. Excellent. And Lindsay, what are we talking about today? Hi, my name is Lindsay Rodman. I'm calling in from Washington, D.C. And today I'm going to talk about space law. There isn't very much of it. Space norms, we don't really have those either. And what that means for the future. This is space, not cyberspace, nor the metaverse. So we're talking about real space law. Right. All right, cool. Well, hey, back to you, Al. Let's kick it off. All right. Three, two, one. <laughs> joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Bala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guests, your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer them in the next hour. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, uh, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Surviving and Thriving in a World of Digital Giants. Ray's a regular television business and technology contributor on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, Bloomberg, CNBC, and Wall Street Journal. I see him on TV almost daily. <laughs> He's a global sought-after keynote speaker and uh, one of the most influential futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. 
Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my awesome co-host, Bala Ashtar, the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. Exits around the world pay attention to every one of his inspirational and insightful tweets when he's not hosting, keynoting, or leading events at Salesforce. You can find him speaking on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg and, of course, posting insightful analyses on ZDNet. But as you know, it's not about us. It's about our amazing guests. And who do we have to kick it off today? It's our privilege to have Lindsay Rodman, Global Fellow at the Wilson Center. Lindsay is a former adjunct senior fellow within the Military Veterans and Society Program at the Center for a New American Society. Lindsay joined the Marine Corps in 2008, where she served as an active duty judge advocate. Lindsay also served on the joint staff as deputy legal counsel within the Office of the Legal Advisor to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, Lindsay spent her last year on active duty as a White House fellow, placed at the National Security Council as director for defense policy and strategy. She continues to serve as a major in the Marine Corps Reserves. Uh, after leaving the Marine Corps, Lindsay joined the Obama administration, first as special assistant to the United, to the Undersecretary of Defense for personnel and readiness, and then as senior advisor international humanitarian policy within the office of the undersecretary of defense for policy lindsay is a fellow and resident at the center for international policy studies at the university of ottawa and a fellow at the canadian global affairs institute i had to like shorten lindsay's bio to like a third because we only have an hour and she's done so much you can follow lindsay on twitter at lindsay rodman uh, l-i-n-d-s-a-y-l Rodman, R-O-D-M-A-N. Welcome, Lindsay, to Disrupt TV. Thank you. Sorry for the bear of a, of a bio there. <laughs> <laughs> you're amazing. That's all I have to say. <laughs> no, you're a total rock star, and, and we're really excited. I've never had a space marine lawyer on our show. You are the first and probably you know, one, one, of, one of the biggest pioneers here. And what does that mean? Right? What experiences do you have to actually create this juxtapositioning of roles? And you know, what is a space marine lawyer? Let's start there. <laughs> Yeah, so that's not a real thing. I mean, it's like, it's what I call myself, but I, I may be one of one. Um, when I was uh, serving in the chairman's office, um, and I should say that I really want to make sure that I do the standard disclaimer that my comments are my own. I'm not here representing the Department of Defense or the Marine Corps or, or anyone's opinions except for my own. Um, but when I was serving in the chairman's office, um, I had the opportunity to jump on some space law issues. And it's a joint office, so it doesn't really matter what service you're in. And typically, I mean, now we've got the Space Force that came out of the Department of the Air Force. Um, but I happened to be a Marine lawyer and I happened to jump on those issues and thought they were really interesting. And later in my career, as I went over to the White House and I worked on some defense policy issues, space came up again. Um, I wasn't the primary person doing that portfolio, but because I had some experience in space, I was able to sort of jump in on some issues there. And then... I got assigned to NATO uh, as a Marine lawyer. And um, once again, because I had just a little bit of experience in space, all of a sudden I became the space lawyer and uh, and got to answer some really cutting edge issues um, that NATO was looking at as NATO declared space to be a new operational domain. And to think about what did that mean in terms of the application of international law and particularly in that context, the law of war to space. So I got some really broad exposure there and, and in my civilian career, after leaving uh, active duty in the Marine Corps, I had a, an amazing opportunity to be on the sort of founding uh, 
team of the Bolden Group, which is a consultancy that um, Charlie Bolden, uh, his son founded, Che Bolden, he's a CEO um, with Charlie Bolden as a, uh, as a senior advisor um, and a, a member of the board. Um, that's really thinking about cultivating and transforming leadership for the new space economy in a way that is inclusive, forward-looking, um, and hopefully will enter to all our benefits. That's amazing. I mean, I just think about the last year of Virgin Atlantic and Amazon and tech, uh, SpaceX and the private sector, just with incredible innovation and exciting, um, I don't know if it's democratization, access to space, but it seems like incredible amount of energy and investments in this space. And as, as a lawyer, there may not be any precedence in terms of, I mean, this is really blue ocean uh, work. Uh, what are your biggest concerns and perhaps even opportunities regarding space law and space norms when you think about the next uh, five, 10 years? I love that you ask about opportunities uh, because normally when lawyers start talking about space, there's kind of two camps, right? There's the camp that says there's no law in space. It's all just the wild, wild west. <laughs> the space west um and uh and so anything's going to go and that means chaos and anarchy and then there's the other group that says um you know no, we have some laws and what we need to do is honor them and you know sort of build up norms around those laws because there's enough and, and we'll be fine and i actually think there's an enormous opportunity to say you're both right uh there there is some law in space but there's really not a lot um, the existing international laws in space are what's called the Outer Space Treaty Regime. It's five treaties that were all signed in the 60s and 70s. Um, and that's basically it when it comes to international law. Um, and, you know, we didn't know in the 1970s what SpaceX was going to be doing in 2022. Uh, so they're not really fit for purpose in a lot of ways. I think it's a great starting point and building block. And people who say that we have nothing... I don't think that's right. We have we have a great foundation to build off of, but there isn't that much. Um, and then the folks who say, hey, we've got plenty of regulation, don't regulate me more. Um, you know, that's not really true either. If we were to encounter real disputes or problems in space about liability or about who's bumping up against who, who's creating you know, damage to each other's satellites or even damage back on Earth based on what's happening in space, we really do not have a robust system to deal with those problems right now. And there's an incredible opportunity we have with all the excitement that folks have about disrupting in terms of new technologies. I think for law nerds, there's an opportunity to disrupt too, where we can start thinking about new institutions and new ways that we can create systems of accountability and enforcement in space. And, and, and who enforces these laws, existing laws? <laughs> okay. so, so really no one. And that's one of, I think, the problems with the Outer Space Treaty regime there have been a couple of times that certain articles, Article 9, for example, um, have been challenged. And those, so the best example that people often point to is the anti-satellite testing that we saw most recently from China and Russia. But the United States is guilty too. We did it a bunch in the 80s. And if you are to create potential damage in space, there are obligations under the Outer Space Treaty um, in terms of what you're supposed to do, the way that you're supposed to inform everyone else. Uh, we never did it, and now Russia and China aren't doing it. Um, and everyone kind of bends over backwards to distinguish what they're doing as being like, ah, I, don't, I don't know that we need to fit within the Outer Space Treaty regime. What that means, though, is that whenever we've had the chance to use the law for some kind of accountability enforcement, we haven't taken it. 
Um, there's another, there are some other examples as well that I can get into if it's of interest, but we really haven't been applying them for accountability and enforcement. Um, aside from that, people like to point to this idea of norms, right? Norms in international law, not just in space, but just in general. People talk about norms as a way to try to get people to fall in line without having accountability and enforcement because no one wants to give up the autonomy, right? We don't want to give up our sovereignty. We don't want to say that an American decision would then be subject to an international court's rulings. Mm -hmm. I understand that. And politically, that's carried the day in the United States. So the, instead, we do norms, which is where everyone kind of agrees on a principle, but without an enforcement mechanism. The problem with norms is that they're only, the enforcement mechanism in norms is public shame, right? Sure. Like, right. So like, can I embarrass you? Do you have any shame? And I think we all know, I don't even need to name names. Some countries and some people do have shame and some don't. And for the ones who don't, often those are the ones we're trying to hold accountable anyway. So, uh, so, you know, it really, we, we butt up against some problems there. So, you know, what I'm really passionate about is trying to think through, are there ways that we can create institutions or systems of interdependence where we get that accountability and enforcement that we're kind of lacking right now? And Lindsay, real quick, right? I, I think there are a couple, there are a couple laws, right? That there's only there's like five treaties that are out there. I think mm -hmm. some have to do with arms control, some have to do with exploration. Like there's a couple of treaties that are important, like damage or objects or safety or something. I, I mean, back to uh, Vala's point on enforcement, right? Is, I mean, are there going to be more or and and who's the body that directs us? Is it, is it the UN or is it these just bilateral treaties? Yeah, so um, so that's the Outer Space Treaty Regime. It's five treaties, and you're exactly right. Um, you've done your homework, which is awesome. <laughs> uh, but we don't use them. So I'll give another example. Um, the Liability Convention says that anything that comes out of your territory and damages another country in space or on their territory, so like let's say that you shoot something up and it falls on another country's territory, that includes anything that comes from your territory that the government doesn't own. So, for example, if private companies are shooting stuff off of uh, or launching things off of American territory and it lands on, say, Russian territory, then the United States government is liable for whatever damage happens there. Yeah. Um, and that's only happened once. And it was a dispute between Canada and Russia. And what ended up happening was they actually settled outside of the claims uh, outside of the liability convention. And so what I'm, you know, the significance of that is that no one uses these tools. Like we have them, but people are bending over backwards not to use them. And, you know, they atrophy over time. Like people sort of stop looking to them as sources of inspiration or even real law in terms of um, uh, accountability and enforcement. And then we start looking to other things. So that's where, you know, right now, when you, when you look in the private sector, everyone likes to talk about norms because it's like, okay, we don't have a lot of law. We just have these five treaties and they're not super relevant to some of the problems that we think that we're going to be facing in the future. Or there's just not a lot of meat on the bones. They say generally that we should all be collaborating, but not much more than that. So let's put some norms out there. And then again, the norms can only do so much work because, you know, what's going to stop people from defecting from the norms? like public accountability, public shame for those who care about that. And for a lot of American corporations, that's going to be some level of accountability, right? Um, but <laughs> I think we all know that that's not going to carry the day in really sticky situations. All right. So we're talking about the future of space communications laws and norms. We're going to come back to you in about 20 minutes. We're going to bring in Frederick to talk about what's happening um, in terms of space cloud. So we'll bring in our next guest now. We'll bring you back on then, Lindsay. So give us a little bit. Thank you, Lindsay. Our uh, 
what a, what a fascinating, we have first space lawyer. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> our, our, our next uh, guest is Dr. Frederick Brun, Chief Evangelist and Digital Transformation at Univap. Uh, Dr. Frederick Brun has served a variety of leadership, entrepreneurial and research roles during the past two decades. He's currently Director and Chief Evangelist of Univap, a Swedish scale-up uh, democratizing space through its innovation space cloud solutions uh, developed with support from European Space Agency. Uh, Univap announced a partnership with AWS in December of 2020 to bring AWS cloud storage and edge services into space cloud and launched the first NASA experiment on space cloud January of this year, 2022. Dr. Brun has previously co-founded the satellite company AAC Microtech and the mobile surveillance robot company uh, Rotondus AB. Dr. Brun uh, served as an adjunct professor in robotics and avionics at Mollar Leiden, uh, Dalen University since 2013. You can follow Dr. Brun uh, on Twitter. This is really cool. Brun Space. <laughs> B R U H N F Space. Uh, welcome, Dr. Brun, to Disrupt TV. Thank you very much. And I find it fascinating uh, with Lindsay basically saying that there are no laws governing cloud <laughs> computing in space. And we are actually doing cloud computing in space. And we have absolutely no idea who actually owns the data. So this is a classical example where technology is preceding the legislation. Right. Frederick, that's amazing. We're going to do our data residency in space and nobody can come after us. <laughs> <laughs> no. <But> or <laughs> everyone will come after you. Yeah, yeah, right, right. You'll be like, hey, we need to set precedence. Um, so space cloud, what is the space cloud? And uh, what, what is that all about? Is, is it exactly what I'm thinking, like the cloud in space? Or is there a lot more to this than we realize? And I thought my company owned the coolest cloud names. But no, space cloud is pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, so let's try to uh, explain this piece by piece. So we started in 2013 with the goal of democratizing space. So if you're familiar with space, you know that we use some very weird processors and you have to develop the code every time and you have no basically code reuse, etc. So in 2013, we set out with AMD, a big American company in CPUs, to pursue an x86 server farm in space. And in 2016, we were able to launch the first x86 based servers into space and test the technology out. So for a number of years now, we've been flying uh, PlayStation 4, and we will now use PlayStation 5 technology in space as well. And that gives us the ability to really have cloud computing in space. Now, obviously, uh, when you look at space, you have radiation, so you cannot simply go to Radio Shack and buy a PlayStation 4 and launch it into space. That won't work. So we had to do a lot of tricks to be able to make an entire cloud infrastructure work in space. But we were able to do that, and from 2017, we have been establishing the space cloud ecosystem where we are bringing in applications and software from terrestrial cloud into space. And all of this came into fruit last year in 2021 when we launched the first space cloud compatible satellite. And we are now orchestrating different machine loads in space, just the same way you do in a terrestrial cloud. You upload containers, you tell the satellite when to orchestrate what container, you have S3 buckets and storage on board, you have CPUs, GPUs, neural network accelerators. So from a practical standpoint, it is a radiation tolerant server infrastructure 
that can run any load that you have on ground. So if you have TensorFlow loads, you can do that. If you're using OpenCV, you can use that. If you're using Windows, you could even do that if you're crazy enough in space. So you're talking about adjacent technologies like artificial intelligence or Internet of Things. Uh, are you able to provide these capabilities? From the response you just gave, it sounds like you can provide services leveraging IoT, machine learning, AI, and, and, and how much power does it take to, 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 to do this uh, you know, on a satellite? So that really depends, of course, on what you're set out to do and the size of the satellite. But the ones that we've launched so far uses about 30 watts uh, of power. And that is enough to be able for us to do, for instance, real-time flooding monitoring from space. Uh, we have demonstrated real-time airborne aircraft tracking capabilities. We have demonstrated that we can launch and run 30, 50, there are between 30 and 50 different applications per orbit, which means that you can really unlock the potential of the satellites and you can serve customers with information created in space in orbit all the time. So instead of launching one satellite for one application, you can have one satellite for a thousand applications now because you can reconfigure the satellite with software just the same way we do on ground. It's just that we've been doing it on ground for about 15 years. So we are catching up to that now. So basically, your satellite looks to you as any IoT device on ground. You cannot really tell that it's in space. And, 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 and your, your customers, uh, mostly government, military, or private sector, or is a combination? It's a combination. Some of the uh, publicly announced customers are obviously uh, defense companies like Lockheed, Boeing, Raytheon. But we've also announced uh, customers like Planet Labs, Satellogic, for instance, and others. Um, we are running experiments for NASA now, as uh, one example as well. So we're seeing um, a big interest from various areas. And you can imagine that if you have, if you're an insurance company and you're looking for flooding, and we can upload a machine learning application to tell you where you have flooding in real time, and only tell you that you don't need to pay for anything else. You pay only for that data. That's a tremendous game changer. And an example of this is that we demonstrated this capability with the European Space Agency last year. And we were able to reduce the amount of data downlinked by 99.9%. And in wow. space, the wow. satellite data transmission is almost one to one to the cost. So we also reduced obviously the cost by 99.9% as well. But I think the most important piece is that we sent down the information within five minutes after acquisition. So rather than waiting hours or days, you have the results within minutes in your phone or wherever you would like to have the result. I uh, did my graduate thesis on measuring electron storm activity in the ionosphere. Uh, I believe the fifth layer of the atmosphere, uh, and I, I don't recall, but the U.S. Air Force had uh, ground-based receivers on the east coast of U.S., low-orbiting satellites, and they would feed us information, and I would uh, use MATLAB software, and it would take us uh, days, sometimes weeks, to uh, compute uh, the three-dimensional uh, model of the electron storms. And the fact that you can now upload uh, or download uh, within minutes, 
and capture activity in space is is ridiculously cool. That's pretty awesome. That's really awesome. Go ahead, Brad. Yeah, it, it is. But I think one of the major and, and maybe the most important aspect of this is that you can now take any software developer from the cell phone industry and write apps that can be used in space. There are no more special compilers or weird processors with architectures you never heard of. It is an x86 infrastructure in space with a orchestration layer that is based on Docker in our case, but it, we've also tested K8S and things like that for mm -hmm. Kubernetes. And with a MATLAB background, we have even had one case where you have uploaded M files to space and used MATLAB in space as well. Well, the, gra the graphic capabilities of MATLAB and the fact that you can, you know, auto compile and create visuals instantly, it, it was a super powerful tool. So, yeah. so less time creating graphics, more time actually analyzing the data, which is pretty yeah. awesome. I can't believe I haven't talked about my, that was my graduate thesis. Uh, I can't believe this. <laughs> I can't something new every show yeah. amazing you know but hey you know we're gonna we're gonna uh, jump in and we're gonna take you back in here in 10 minutes frederick and we're gonna yeah. bring in dr david bray and we're gonna talk a little bit about what's going on at the stimson center in terms of space and quantum communications and sensors so let's go do that and we'll bring you back in a bit and then we'll have all three guests lindsay dr bray and of course uh, we'll have dr bloom back in so go ahead uh, well, uh, for all of our audience knows our next guest. He's a first ballot Hall of Fame inductee to Disrupt TV. He was on like episode three, and now we're on episode 280-something. <laughs> so Dr. David Bray is distinguished fellow at Stimson Center and principal at Lead to Adapt Ventures. Uh, very short bio, Dr. Bray was named a senior fellow with the Institute of Human Machine Cognition. Business Insider named him one of the top 24 Americans who are changing the world under 40. He was named a young global leader by the World Economic Forum from 2016 to 2021. From 2017 to 20, uh, Dr. Bray served as executive director for People-Centered Internet Coalition, chaired by the inventor of internet, <laughs> uh, with Surf. Uh, and, and so welcome, uh, Dr. Bray, welcome back to Disrupt TV. Thanks for having me here, Vala and Ray. And as you've heard from both Lindsay and uh, Frederick, space is being disrupted as we speak in, in ways that are gonna have impact here at home. And I think it's worth just sort of making sure that the, the Disrupt TV audience understands, we right now have a little bit less than 7,000 satellites. Uh, and there are some stats that actually say that SpaceX has actually launched more satellites than any one company. So a commercial company has done more than any one government. Wow. But of those 7,000 satellites, give or take, we're gonna be conservatively 100,000 or more in eight years. So we're going from 7,000 to 100,000. It's going to raise interesting questions about what does that mean? You know, does do privacy laws apply from observation taken from space? Um, are we okay with possibly political campaigns using tracking of uh, both political candidates, but also possibly voter registration from space? What does this mean for open societies? Um, we know already hedge funds are actually counting reflectivity of cars and parking lots to predict whether or not a store is going to do well or not going to do well. Um, and so if you as a company are not thinking about your space engagement strategy, both on a public front, but also how you're using this for competitiveness in your business landscape, uh, you should start now. 
Wow. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, and I mean, that's, you're touching upon these, right? The macro geopolitical trends that are important here um, in terms of things that we should be thinking about regarding space, um, especially when private companies and private sector companies are, are out there. I mean, what happens, for example, if we suddenly can't see through the atmosphere, right? I mean, is there a long density in terms of how many satellites we can put up there, especially on low Earth orbits? Um, but we're going to see stuff like that. But, but let's take the geopolitical piece, right? I mean, the two big players in the space right now are China. Uh, well, actually, three EU and and the, and the US and soon UAE and others are going to be jumping into this. So, India. what's going on the geopolitical side? Yeah, um, there. Well, that's just it. Is is it's getting more and more crowded. I mean, let's not forget UAE. Um, UAE successfully not only launched a, a rocket, but they actually sent a satellite to Mars. Um, and so, increasingly, we're going to see both nation-state actors that you would not have thought about being involved in space, but also non-state entities. I mean, what does it mean when, conservatively, SpaceX is launching 30,000 satellites by the end of 2030? Uh, you know, Bezos will have 30,000 as well, and then China will have 30,000. Um, and what are you going to do when maybe it has to be a three-way call between Musk, Bezos, and China to say one of your satellites is going to bump into our satellites, and we only have one hour to figure out who's going to move what? Um, and so, you know, because people don't realize if a collision happens in space, we could very well not be able to use space for another 75 years. Um, and so the stakes are high if a collision happens in space and that we cannot, we can make it so it's not usable. Or if you decide to blow up a satellite and leave it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like we've never seen an actor that recently, oh, wait, yes. One that is currently in a war in Ukraine, maybe blow up a satellite just to show that they could do it. Um, and also possibly hack satellites as well, which seems to be the case of Viasat. Space. Yeah. Can I take yeah. out your space with my, your satellite with my laser? Is that, is there a treaty against that? Well, and on that note, actually, just this week, uh, a country of 1.4 billion people uh, demonstrated that they have an AI that has been trained it's a it's a it's a technology that can actually destroy satellites, but it will actually deceive the satellites into thinking they're not being hunted, and then proceed to destroy them. Um, and so, when you're actually if, if you've seen the movie War Games, uh, mm -hmm. now we're actually dealing with the fact that we're going to have AIs doing targeting of satellites. If things ever got hot and we wanted to actually like sort of have a tit for tat, uh, do we need to be worried that AI will be behind the scenes making the decisions whether or not to shoot down a satellite? Wow. what nefarious states can do by watching american movies but anyway back to you Vaughn. Okay. <laughs> so what you need is what we need more we need more non-dystopian movies we need to have yes. a film that, that that gives us hope and, and but i think that does get to the point which is i mean we can now say food supply chains water supply chains just global supply chains in 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 in, in aggregate and as you heard from frederick i mean data and cloud these things will now be linked to space and so really what I think, and this is, I'd be interested in Lindsay's thoughts on this as well. What we really need to do in the absence of any space law, we need to make it so that everybody's incentivized to preserve space because otherwise you may not be able to feed your people any more than we're going to be able to feed our people too, mm -hmm. that our stakes are linked together. And so if we see it as a win-win, that might be, you know, again, going back to war games, you know, the only option to win is to not to play at all. Yeah, yeah. As I'm listening to you guys talk about movies, I'm thinking about what I'm going to see Top Gun, this, the new one, and how, <laughs> and how many, and I know it's not quite space, but you know, it's, it's close enough. Uh, okay, so you talked about 7,000 satellites growing in order of magnitude to 100,000. Of the 7,000 that are there, like how, how are we leveraging these satellites to help with, you mentioned, you know, the war that's happening in Ukraine or climate change or food shortages, like what, what are some of these big, uh, issues that we're facing, and how are these? Uh, how is this technology innovation being used to 
to help us perhaps address some of these concerns we have. Right. So most of the satellites at the moment are communication satellites. Um, and and you, you probably have seen some articles about what SpaceX might have been doing to help Ukraine. Yeah. I actually did some commentary which said, you know, we need to also make sure we don't get anybody targeted because ground stations yeah. can be targeted. And so the last thing you want to do is have someone near it and then you figure out their location. Right. But, but it is helping with connectivity in that region. Um, in terms of uh, the other satellites, some of them are able to do what's called remote sensing or imaging. And, and we know, for example, we can pick up um, large methane gas plumes. And in fact, there was a large methane gas plume that was released by Russia recently that, that was sort of in violation of, of climate change accords. And so we can hold people and countries accountable uh, when it comes to environmental, and that's interesting. And then there's also the ability to actually understand, and, and Frederick will be able to talk a little bit more when he comes back, uh, where's flooding at risk, as we know that climate change is gonna be happening? Uh, where is the place that you need to actually start thinking of in advance of maybe they're not growing enough crops? Um, and also mm -hmm. just holding people accountable. I will share at the Stimson Center, there's a project right now with, with the Mekon Delta, um, large country of 1.4 billion people. Again, China has been known to sort of dam the Mekon. And the trouble is they won't tell people when they're gonna either release a large amount of water or they're gonna hold back a large amount of water. And that has implications on countries that are, are further south of, of the Mekon Delta. And so what the Stimson Center has right now is a combination of people on flip phones when they see the water level suddenly drop, but then also satellite footage. And then they can turn to that large country and say, uh, did you forget to tell us something? And that sort of peer pressure approach is a way to sort of hold them accountable. And the first time they were very embarrassed. And now it's actually a sort of way of trying to encourage people to play well in terms of normative behavior by using the peer pressure effect from imagery from space. Wow. That's, 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 so it does give you hope that, that we may figure out new ways of governing. Yeah. I think the one thing that I really want to see, uh, and I know we talked about this on, on the program last week too, I'm worried that space is only gonna benefit a few. It's gonna be sort of very mm -hmm. lopsided in the benefits. I'd love to see local community efforts. You know, We heard from Sharon about our green jobs machine, but mm -hmm. ideas of going to the local level to understand what they need, what their goals are, and then link it to what's possible through space data. So you mm -hmm. have the win-win in the local context in that the local context isn't telling you what they're seeing, what they need. And it's actually possibly also making the satellites better because the satellites might think they see something like it's not growing well sure. or they're not growing these crops for this reason. But when you talk to local people, you have that better context and it becomes this virtuous win-win cycle for the big satellite companies, but also for local communities. Yeah, I mean, isn't it true that for any breakthrough new innovation technology, you essentially served a few at the beginning and then over time increased scale and access? It, it is. That, that generally happens. The challenge is, is it usually takes 50 years for it to be become more equitable. It yeah. also generally takes between 15 and 25 years to figure out the ethics. One might say social media, we're coming out of the, the, the first we thought it was the best thing since sliced bread, <laughs> we're going through a trial of solution meant, and then we're still now figuring out the ethics of social media. I don't think we have the luxury of waiting 50 years for this to become more equitable in its benefits. And so what can we do to sort of jumpstart and accelerate, maybe mm -hmm. tie it to UNSDGs or something like that. But I think if we're not intentional about trying to find more equitable community benefits, we're gonna end up super empowering autocracies and be surprised that open society, I mean, you can just imagine what's gonna happen in open societies when political opponents are taking satellite footage of their other opponent. I mean, that, yeah, that yeah, is troublesome. Yeah. Or, or even just like, do we want to see a divorce case in 2030 where the aggrieved party says, you said you were going to the grocery store, but per the satellite footage, well, we know you were going over yeah, and having yeah, an affair yeah. over here. I mean, I personally don't yeah. want to see that future, yeah. 
but in, in you know, the <laughs> best way to prevent that future from happening yeah. is to create a better one. I wouldn't mind tracking Ray's whereabouts in, uh, in the future, because <laughs> uh, most of the time I don't know if he's in space or on Earth. I'd like to get uh, Lindsay and Dr. Bruin back on the panel because you um, you gently reference UN SDGs. Yes. And I, the thought in my mind is, if you fast forward five to 10 years, can we anticipate an 18th, 19th, 20th SDG added, which speaks to norms or expected behaviors and opportunities in space? So I will defer to Lindsay on that, but I'll give my, my first I'll give my preview and then go to Lindsay and then Frederick. I would love to see space baked into the existing SDGs as opposed to new ones. Uh, oh. I already think there are too many, but I'd like to go through each one of them and say, what are the norms of behavior that we want to see associated with, say, food or with water or in the different SDGs as we go through it? Yeah, let's go to Lindsay. So, Lindsay, what do you yeah, think? Yeah, I think that sounds right. So much about what space enables for the average person, the average American, the average global citizen is not about brand new capabilities. It's about enhancing how we live, live our everyday lives. So, you know, improving access to water and health and information about climate and weather, um, you know, sort of everyday human security type uh, uh, issues can be improved through space. And so building that into um, the existing SDGs makes a lot of sense to me. And thinking about space in that context is great. Um, the UN is really the natural place to be thinking about bringing the global community together to have these conversations. I will add, you know, when when we have these conversations with big tech companies or in American-dominated um, venues, saying that the UN is the right forum for this conversation is a laugh line. David was present when I said this, and it was a laugh line at a reason. I had a company to remain nameless. And so we. Yeah, we've got some work to do to to think about, you know, the UN is the natural place to start. It's the place where you get the global south to have a voice at the table. Um, and they're really not going to be well represented if you don't go there. So the question is, can we reinvigorate that forum? Or if we're going to create new institutions and new forums, which isn't on its face a terrible idea, you really need to prioritize inclusion. Yeah, this is going to be a tough issue. And as we see how, you know, laws tie back to data, tie back to the Internet, right? I mean, this is something that's happening right now. And so the question is, you know, what other disruptions are we going to see in the next five years? Where will you see these disruptions take place? Um, and does it create new business models? Does it um, create new freedoms that we don't know about? Do we have to protect existing freedoms? I'll start with you, David, and then go to uh, Frederick. So. so I think one of the disruptions that I think, you know, it's not going to be Web3. Web3 is still in search of- Web5 now, according uh, to Jack, Jack Dorsey. I'm not riding that hype train. But I think, it, I think we're, it, a combination of both what space will enable, but also quantum, and not just quantum computing. Everyone rushes to quantum computing. I think it's going to be quantum communications, quantum sensing. Um, the quantum revolution is going to happen. However, for open societies, this gets to the point of how do we do equity and inclusion? Because again, I'm worried that it's going to be lopsided. And I think we're going to have to figure out how we work with partners that are multinational in nature, because it's otherwise it's just 330 million people in the United States versus an autocracy of 1.4 billion that may have alternative futures. So I would love to like be working with not just Canada, UK, Australia, New Zealand on these activities. I'd like to be working with Sweden, not to Frederick over there, uh, and Finland, as well as Japan and Germany and possibly India, because 
this is really about open societies trying to figure out how they use these technologies to benefit everyone, not just a few. And if we do it by ourselves, we'll all hang separately, but we really need to figure out how we do it together. Yeah, and we're seeing free, I mean, the, the, even the notion of open society might be very controversial inside the US. So when we say free Western democracies or free people, I mean, that's maybe, maybe different in terms of- I'm not saying, I'm saying open society, because I want to include Singapore, and I know Singapore might see some, certain words as a lightning rod, so yes. <laughs> it's very true, very, very true there. Um, what are you seeing, Frederick, on this line? So, I mean, space, so it, space um, governance, you know? It's so interesting because on Earth we have the internet and everyone can communicate on internet because it uses TCP IP, a standard protocol, and you can build your services on top of that. Now, when we will have the same in, in space, you can have interoperability between satellites. So you can have American satellites interoperable with Chinese satellites, but do we want that? But what we will definitely see is a, a space-based internet that allows you to reason between satellites and space. You can have business models that fusion data between 10 different satellites with eight different sensors, for instance. You can send up different tasks. You can have autonomous mission planning. All those things that requires a tremendous amount of effort on ground today will be done in space. And that in turn will open up the possibility to basically generate any data product at any time. And given that input, we are going, as David elaborated, we are going to see a very different use of space. You can hold people accountable to a completely different new level. But obviously, you could also do warfare in a new way as well. Yeah, and you guys are talking about things from onboard satellite image processing, from forest fires to agriculture, like the precision farms to you know oil spill detection to you know like any kind of like earthquakes or hurricane activity that's coming up there. I mean, these are pretty interesting developments that are going there. I mean, who's ready to embrace this? Are people jumping in right now, Frederick? Absolutely, we're seeing a tremendous uptick in this, but there is still a level of education because most people that has been buying data products from space has today been buying a satellite with a sensor and you've been buying the raw data and then you process the data on ground. So now when you have the ability to actually buy data points and you don't need to specify that it should be a hyperspectral or a SAR radar or a LIDAR, etc. You specify, I would like to know this and we don't care if you fuse it between five ten a hundred different satellites the market changes tremendously because you are buying data just the same way you do on ground so the other thing i would just say real quick on building on what frederick just said ray i think the other thing we need to think about is is two things and this gets to, to Lindsay's norms one um, these satellites are moving incredibly fast and so no one's going to be able to yank the hard drives if the hard drives either have a case of ransomware or something on them that they're not supposed to. That's going to be an interesting question of what, what's our response plan when the first ransomware attack happens on a commercial satellite, especially because it's not just that satellite, but essentially if that satellite becomes a paperweight and crashes into another one, major issues. The other question, though, is that I don't want to see happen is a fully encrypted satellite network that is the new Silk Road in space, and it's doing nefarious activities that we don't have any insights into. Uh, I'm all for privacy of communications and everything like that, but we got to figure out how do we, and the question is whose law of compliance applies, but how do we make sure there's not, you know, there's not human trafficking or small arms terrorist financing happening in space in encrypted comms?
Okay, uh, my question is for all three of you, uh, because thousands of people are watching you now, this weekend you're gonna get a call from Mr. Bezos and Mr. Musk, <laughs> both of them offering you space travel, uh, and you have to choose only one. Uh, and I'll start with Lindsay. Which one would you choose if you chose any and, and why? <laughs> one is a three-day, uh, you know, inspiration for multiple orbits of Earth. The other, I think, you know, you go off for about 10 minutes and you come back down. <laughs> I, I, this is like the, you know, sort of choosing between two, I don't know, evils. I mean, I, I my answer is neither. Um, but I'm going to go... Bezos because he strikes me as the less um less of a chaos agent. <laughs> and the one thing the one thing that I worry about in space is like there's enough chaos up there. We're trying to figure out how to impose some order on some systems right now. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, <laughs> and neither is a perfect answer, you know, but I, I, I and and if I had to bet I would have thought that the marine would have chose to spend as long as possible in space, but I definitely understand your answer for sure. <laughs> Dr. Bray, which one? Uh, I would actually go online and, and auction off the ticket to a good cause, and whichever Ooh, thing goes the best wow. is what I would do. So, wow. I mean, I would give so up. You look like you're in space right now. I oh, can't believe you. I'm here. There's no COVID. There's no COVID <laughs> in space. It's great. <laughs> okay, that's a great answer. That's a great answer. Dr. Broom. This is a very tough call, but I would probably opt to go with Musk and stay in space for a while, but I would still um, work for a better good for space. But be go being able to go into space, experience that, would give me an ability to work towards a better use for space. And I must agree also with Lindsay that neither of these gentlemen seems to be having Earth as the primary focus of their activities. Yeah, I think if there's one thing that we would love to get a phone call from anybody about is how can we be more people and community centric in our space activities? Because if we don't do that, we may have a replicate, you know, we may repeat what the railroad tycoons did uh, about 120 years ago. Dr. Bray, how old is Dylan? Dylan is five and he loves space. So Especially Dylan, black holes. So, Dylan, <laughs> uh, so uh, do you think in Dylan's life we'll, we'll, we'll get close to Musk's vision of multi-planetary inhabitants? That's an interesting thing. I, I think the limiting factor is actually going to be the human body. And so, you know, mm. I, I think we're going to, it's quite possible we will have, I mean, we've already got robotic vehicles on Mars and things mm. like that. I think in order to go beyond that and actually stay there, we're going to have to figure out what are we okay with in terms of updating the human body to exist outside of a planet that is the current gravity that we have, is the current atmosphere we have, and everything like that. So biological um, limitations. Oh yeah, we know like human eyes very quickly start to dry. Yeah, exactly. It's not a technological limitation. It really is. Is human bodies were not built to operate outside of the planet we're currently on. Yeah, the, the level of mods that are coming, the material science that's there, the biochemistry and the biomedical engineering, bioengineering that's going on for space to be full-time is going to be quite interesting. It's really, the, the notion of being human is about to be pushed to the limits as to what will human be. Um, and then also what we're seeing in the level of automation and AI for space. I mean, a lot of the things that we need to be done are going to be fully automated 
and and basically built on systems that are going to run on the space cloud i mean if you think about what it is that's just these are all primary infrastructures first principles that have to be in place before we can even get there i mean just basic oxygen production like how do we get consistent oxygen consistent energy uh consistent so, so when we talk about laws and norms is this like fda approved to be in space or how do, how do you how there is no, there is no, so, no, I think you hit the nail on the head for another, for another disruptive, uh, we, we have to talk about synthetic biology. I mean, because synthetic biology is happening as we speak on, on Earth, not even in space. And some of the space applications include, for example, you can actually build more pristine fiber optic cable in space than you can here on Earth. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the early ways that it's going to sort of be profitable. But I, I imagine there'll also maybe some synthetic biology advancements where it proves better to build it in a zero G or a low gravity environment. But you've hit the nail on the head is not only do we have the quantum revolution happening, not only do we have the space revolution happening, we've got in parallel the synthetic biology revolution. And you talk about challenges of norms. I mean, Lindsay would know better. I mean, we can go back to biological war conventions. Um, but other than that, uh, they're, they're, synthetic biology is going to be very interesting very fast. I want to go to a point Bala was making earlier, and, and it's really about enforcement. Lindsay, like, what happens with enforcement? If we have laws that cannot be enforced, like, what do we do? I mean, those aren't they usually just ignored? Like, what, what, what do you do when you can't enforce treaties or enforce rules? Like, and shaming doesn't work. <laughs> then what do you do? Shaming doesn't work. And I mean, I was, we we're talking about this in the metaverse as well. Like, the same problem. Like, the right. rules and the laws don't exist, right? I mean, who, who do you sue and who's liable for something? Right. And, and the problem that we have in space is actually not just like, you know, what happens when you when you go against the rules, but there's no agree there. There are no rules. Right. Like, so my presumption about what the rules should be in space, what I think of as being sort of neighborly conduct in space may not align with what China thinks fair use of space should look like. Um, for example, you know, just to to throw an example out there. So this is some of the work that people are trying to do with norms development is just getting people on the same page and thinking about, you know, what could we think about being the rules? Even domestically, you know, it's really, really hard to get internet multilateral international treaties these days. They're just almost never signed. They, you know, in the 50s, 60s and 70s, that was how you did it. And it worked to some extent. There's a the history of colonialism and lack of inclusion and that whole and how we approach that. But for the most part, it was constructive, especially when it comes to things like the Outer Space Treaty regime. There isn't a lot of hope. Like the U.S. government position is that we're not even going to try. We want to just pursue norms in space and, and not international law because we think we can get further along those lines in terms of getting everyone on the same page. But then your problem of enforcement becomes exactly it. So what we need but is, is who has the biggest tactical high energy laser wins or who's got, you know, <laughs> I mean, well, that old, what was that, that magneto hydro something explosive munition? I forget what that was. So. Yeah. I mean, what we need is systems of interdependence, right? So like the accountability comes from things like the International Space Station, where um, you have historic collaboration among nations that might be bickering about other stuff on Earth. Uh, but we have created the incentive structures such that no one wants to defect uh, and we are reliant upon each other. And space is actually a public, you know, there's actually a sort of legal argument about whether space is a global commons or not. I won't bore you with the details of that. But the questions are, in what ways is space a global commons like the ones that we experience on Earth and what ways is it different? And one of the ways that David kind of uh, alluded to earlier is that the potential, when you talk about disruption, the potential to disrupt space and really just take it off 
the playing field for us for an extended period of time is much larger. Like we can pollute the oceans and and sort of ruin it for everyone, but to really take that off the table forever is not, you know, we, we don't really foresee that happening. It's happening slowly, but not, you know, with the same urgency. So, so there really is an incentive for us all to collaborate. And what we need to figure out is ways that we can talk to each other. I think a really great place to start would be um, talking about space debris because no one wants there to be space debris. Everyone agrees we should be doing something about it. Most of the potential solutions are sort of unobjectionable. Um, and so that that would be a really, really constructive way to put heads together and have people start doing the work of showing what collaboration can look like in space outside of the International Space Station. And there is no, there is no space there is no space debris consortium that exists that's international and focused on you know, Dr. Bray's laughing. Oh, I'm just thinking I'm, I'm just thinking interstellar garbage collectors of the planet Earth. <laughs> yeah. There there are companies who are doing this and who are uh, you know creating this technology. Uh, you know, I'm familiar with a couple of startups that are trying to do that type of work. Um, but really, it's also just a question about like who's responsible for what, who's going to pay yeah. for it, right? Wow. Um, so you really want to kind of band together and have everyone agree about that. And you know, I'll add that um, we do have some lessons to learn about the metaverse and the big tech experience here. The you know, big tech companies, startups, they hate regulation, they hate laws, they love the idea that it's a wild, wild west. It's like very sexy and you know, tech bro culture, right? <laughs> like, um, but. What we've seen in terms of where we are now with some of these big tech companies is now they're looking back and saying, oh, we actually agreed on a lot of stuff that could have been regulated ex ante, and we would have benefited from it had we actually gone down that road and put our heads together. And the US government probably would have done whatever we'd asked them to do in terms of regulation. Now you look like bad actors and like you've been misbehaving and now it looks punitive. So my hope is that we can take that lesson into space and think about ways that, you know, folks who are major players in space now can put heads together and come up with some really good ideas about how we can all sign up for some some rules that will inure to everyone's benefit. Which uh, which non-space industries should care most about the conversation we just had for the past hour? Is it food, agriculture? Like who who who's going to benefit most? from understanding, and all three of you are in front of uh, CXOs across multiple industries, I, I suspect. I know Dr. David Bray is, that's probably daily ritual. Uh, what do you tell these folks? What do you tell these CEOs or CMOs or whatever, chief technology officers, in terms of this is disruption that's happening in the space uh, industry, and this is how it's going to impact you, and this is why you should care. Can you tell us which industries should be really carefully paying attention to what's happening in space? I'll jump on one and then I'll be interested in Frederick and Lindsay. I would say banks, because this is going to impact, banks. this is how banks. you impact lending. This is how you're going to do adjustments, insurance. This is how you're going to do assessments. Uh, I mean, the future of all that, if you ever need to do a claim is we'll actually like, we'll have the satellite fly by and see if that claim actually happened or not. We'll actually assess it on a fly. And in 30 minutes or less, your claim will be adjudicated. So I think banks got to care about this. It'll also impact how they make loans to telecommunications or to data centers or things like that. But I would say banks are going to be the most disrupted by space. Wow. wow that's and right. if we continue down that path, I would say energy and food supply. Uh, and I think to Lindsay's comment, I don't, I'm pessimistic. I don't think we will see any self-governing in space until we fight out the first war on the moon and that will be regarding um, 
minerals and it will be uh, helium-3 for the nuclear power plants of the future, the future fusion reactors. Wow, wow. So I, I, I'm, hopefully we won't have to see that, but I don't think we will see regulation until we have the first war on the moon. Well, that's one of the scary pieces, right? I mean, this helium-3 mining on the lunar surface is, is going to pick up. Right. And, and that's really the battle of who can actually colonize the moon first and start production. Right. About getting those energy sources as the moon is the launch pad. Right. And, and without any rules and regulations, it's, it's kind of scary. Lindsay, what's your thoughts on as to, uh, you know, what, what, what the industries that matter or be disrupted most? I mean, I'm going to pick the really obvious one, which is communications. <laughs> I mean, duh, I know. But, uh, but, but really, you know, when it comes to communications, we are not just you know, needing to pay attention to what happens in space, but becoming so singularly reliant on space that the question about what happens to our communication, should we lose space if there's a cybersecurity breach that impacts space, um, that that's actually where you have the, the biggest potential swings in terms of capability across the board in any sector. Wow. You know, we've been doing this show for almost seven years. I never thought first war on the moon would be something that I would hear on Disrupt TV. <laughs> That's a, talk about uh, the true essence of disruption. Wow. Uh, uh, I, 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 go ahead, Ray. I, I, I apologize yeah, for no, I was going to say, like, look, I mean, we're, we're entering many pioneering areas, mm -hmm. right? The real space versus the metaverse versus, you know, more like, you know, bioethics. Right. A lot of things haven't been discovered. Um, we're missing frameworks. Right. And I think it's going to be very, very important for frameworks and intercooperation to come into play. Um, and we need more institutions to be stronger, to be able to pull people together. Um, you three have been working really hard to do that. And it's really been a pleasure and honor to have you here today uh, because this is the future of the future. And, and it starts with the intercooperation. It starts with the framework. It starts with ethics. It starts with finding the right level and balance between regulations and innovation. And of also, more importantly, trying to bring different folks together to be able to create new opportunities. Otherwise, why, why bother, right? And, and so thank you so much for being here today. Thank, thank you. you, Ray. And one thing, if I could say on closing, I'd love to see Disrupt TV have a nonprofit that could do demonstration projects on these topics. Cause I think the way we show the future, the way we make the future is we show it to the rest of the world. Governments are gonna not be able to do it. Companies by themselves are not gonna be incentivized to play with others. But if you have a nonprofit that brings them all together, maybe we need to have the disruptive nonprofit for the future forward. I love that. Foundation. Well, hey, thanks a lot. We'll get back in the green room, so. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's fascinating. It's fascinating, and and uh, for me, it feels early to me. Uh, it's it's amazing to talk about you know space cloud and being able to you know uh, modify software and have interoperable apps and communication done a fraction of a time in space. Um, your what are your, your thoughts uh, about what we learned over the past hour? It's it's really just incredibly interesting to me. You know, I, I was very inspired by all the possibilities, uh, but I also realized that we, we've got a lot of work on Earth that we've got to take care of. And, and I think a lot of it is, is really, um, we, we've got to figure out how to bring people together. We, we've got to figure out how to have a little bit more tolerance and patience and, and diversity of thought. Um, because, you know, in order to do something like this at human scale for humankind, 
uh, it's going to be very hard, right, if, if we can't get people to agree on some basic principles, uh, some norms, and to agree to disagree on, on where things could go, right? And, and I think we're in the process of that. We've been going through that over the last two years, uh, trying to understand where people come from, why people think differently, how people are pursuing or viewing things. And, uh, you know, we're still struggling to do that. Yeah. Um, it's it's really making me think about you know the geopolitical impacts of where we are today, and and if we can't get energy and, and the cost of energy and food down to a point where people can survive and think about higher level things, uh, we're we're going to be in a lot of trouble, and, and we're seeing that right right now with inflation. And so I, I hope we find new opportunities in space. I hope they are opportunities back to what each of the panelists talked about that allow us to take care of Earth and take care of people here first as well on our way there uh, and, and use that as other opportunities to pursue, you know, what, what our framers really talked about, the pursuit of happiness, right? Whatever that may be for you, like, how do you get there? And I, I think that's the ultimate noble goal. But, but sorry to go meta and deep on you there, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The time space to our founders. Wow, that's, that's, that's pretty awesome. Uh, uh, okay, were you surprised, were you surprised that three people that are studying space and trying to shape the future of space, all were somewhat reluctant to travel to space when given an offer with, uh, you know, either uh, Musk or, or Bezos. <laughs> and, and then I ask you the question, which one of the two options would you choose, if at all? I think the, I think the, the options, I think it was not the thrill of traveling to space that was holding them off. I think it was really the offer. And, and yeah. I, think I'm, I would make, might say, they would all love to go to space, but each one had a different answer to, to yeah. address what it is. Maybe someone should go first or, or maybe it wasn't the right individual at that moment in time, or maybe it was not the right moment in time. Uh, for me, um, I, I would want to go into space, right? And, and to do that, I would go, as soon as Elon gets into space, I'll go. That, that's, that's my sign that it's safe. <laughs> if he's not flying it, I'm not going. At least if Bezos, he went up on his own, right? That's different. So, but yeah. until Elon gets on one of his own craft, uh, you know, I'm not ready to jump onto his. But side. undoubtedly, he has the the, the most time tested, most mature. I mean, he's got a 10 year head start. Willing to get on their own craft. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Drinking your own champagne, I guess. Okay. <laughs> you go. Uh, uh, I would. Uh, I I I would go with SpaceX uh, just because I believe that they have the best engineering and the most time spent uh, developing the, the capabilities. More missions, more launches. More missions, more launches. I mean, a, again, a 10-year head start, I would say. Um, uh, uh, but it, it, it would be a longer longer trip. So maybe, you know, maybe I do what Dr. Bray said. I donate the trip to uh, favorite charity. Okay, next, next, next week, uh, episode 284, we have Sudish Nair, CEO of ThoughtSpot. As our guest, we have Mike Frazier, Vice President of Sustainability Development at Schneider Electric, uh, a world leader in terms of understanding and innovation in sustainable uh, uh, energy, and John Baird and Edward Sullivan, who are the co-authors of Leading with Heart and the Importance of Compassion as a, as a, as a core trait for successful leadership. Uh, if it's Friday, it's Disrupting Me. We welcome you to join us again next week as we have three, uh, four extraordinary executives and authors who are going to expand our, 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 our space, <laughs> our minds. We'll see Lindsay and David in the green room. And yeah, thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Cheers.